0: You know, now that uh, football season is starting to wind down, basketball is taking center stage. And in the state of Iowa, college basketball is king this time of year. Both Iowa and Iowa State have pretty good teams this year. And there's just something about college basketball that you don't get with other sports. Since you only need a handful of guys or a handful of women to put together a basketball team, every small college has one. So there's always the chance that that tiny school can upset the major programs. And we see it every March, don't we? And we love upsets. We love the underdogs. We make movies about them. We write songs about them. We retell the tale for years. And as a result, underdog stories sometimes get exaggerated, right? Such is the case with a great underdog story in history known as the Battle of Agincourt. The Battle of Agincourt was something of a turning point in the Hundred Years' War between France and England. Can you imagine fighting a war for 100 years? What could possibly be worth that? Did they remember what they were fighting about? But the Battle of Agincourt is celebrated in England as one of the great underdog stories in history. On October twenty fifth, 1450, Henry V led a small band of troops In northern France, to a great victory over a much larger and heavily armored French army. And 600 years later, the English are still crowing about it. Songs have been written about it. They've made movies. Shakespeare even wrote a play about it. But in France, it's sort of a national embarrassment. It's been all but erased from the history books. But when you peel back all the legends surrounding the battle, and look at the cold, hard facts, a different story... Starts to emerge. The English victory is still astounding. They were without a doubt the much smaller force, but this was no miracle. The English simply had better strategy, they took advantage of the terrain, and they used the right weapons for the conditions. Henry V's troops were in trouble. Throughout the summer of 1450, their ranks were decimated by sickness and disease. So Henry decided to retreat to an English-held region in France called Calais. But the French were having none of that. This was their opportunity to crush Henry's forces. So near the castle of Agincourt, the French army maneuvered in front of Henry's army to block their way. Now, it's impossible to know the exact numbers involved in this battle, But historians today estimate that the English were outnumbered by the French at least 2 to 1, and perhaps as much as 4 to 1. Henry had anywhere between six to 9,000 troops, but the French had at least 12,000 soldiers, and maybe as many as 36,000. But it wasn't the sheer number of the French army that would have been the most intimidating. It was the fact that the French army was so heavily armored compared to the English. 80% of Henry's army was longbowmen. These are the guys in the movies who shoot the arrows, but they have no armor or heavy weapons. Only 20% of the English army was made up of heavily armored knights, and only a few of them were on horses. The French army, on the other hand, had almost 10,000 heavily armored knights and a cavalry of 1,200 horses. In any other battle, an armored cavalry that size would have mowed down the opposing force like grass. The foot soldiers wouldn't have stood a chance. But this wasn't any other battle. Henry had carefully considered the conditions of the battlefield that day. He understood the strength and weaknesses of both armies, and he was ready for them. He put his armored knights in the middle of the line, and he flanked them on either side with his long bowmen. But the long bowmen had no armor, so they would be vulnerable to the French cavalry. So he instructed his men to erect impaling stakes in front of them so the French cavalry would have to break formation when they reached them. And when that happened, the longbowmen would strike. They would drop their bows in favor of axes, mallets, and clubs and attack the French knights. Now, even out of formation, French knights armored with broadswords would have been easily able to defeat untrained longbowmen who were coming at them with basically camping tools. Well, the French failed to take into consideration one major factor that the English would use to their advantage. The field on which the English drew their battle lines had been recently plowed and it had been raining for days. So the battlefield became a mud pit. French armor at this time could weigh up to 100 pounds. So as the knights advanced, they sunk into the mud up to their knees. As the horses slogged through the mud, they were sitting ducks for the long bowmen. And by the time the surviving knights reached the English lines, they were exhausted. They could barely move. Their horses were wounded and staggering through the muck and mire. But the English longbowmen, who were not bogged down by any armor, were able to freely advance through the mud, and they easily cut down the helpless mass of French chivalry wallowing in the mud. Some of the French knights were so encumbered by their armor, they simply fell from exhaustion and drowned in their helmets. It was a total disaster for the French at Agincourt. Their army was destroyed. And the English had the advantage for the rest of the Hundred Years' War. In reality, if you look at it, the French never stood a chance at Agincourt. They were the underdogs. Sure, if the English had fought in the traditional traditional manner like they were supposed to, then the French would have won. If the English had fought them straight up man to man, using the same tactics as the French, then they would have been crushed. The French were stronger, they had numbers, they were heavily armored, And the French had horses, but the English would not be intimidated. Have you ever heard the expression that warns against bringing a knife to a gunfight? Well, the English brought a gun to a knife fight. They had the superior skills, the better plan, and the appropriate weapons. And they overwhelmed a superior enemy. I'll take the little guy with a gun over the big guy with a knife any day. Welcome to episode number two. Of our brand new series of messages entitled Anti Hero The Chronicles of David. It's getting more and more difficult these days to tell the good guys from the bad guys. And as a result, we've seen the rise of the anti hero in modern fiction. He's the hero of the story, but not quite. He does heroic things, but he sometimes lacks heroic qualities. He's earthy, gritty, and contradictory. In other words, he's like us. But the anti hero is by no means a modern concept. The Old Testament is rife with anti-heroes who were used powerfully by God in spite of themselves, and chief among them was David. Try as we might to whitewash his image, the fact remains that his life was stained by scandal and soaked in blood. Yet somehow, some way, he overcame the odds, he saved the nation, and he won God's heart. In the upcoming weeks, We'll take an unflinching look at history's greatest anti-hero. These are the Chronicles of David. Every anti-hero has an origin story, and last week we saw David's. The existing king of Israel was a man named Saul, and Saul looked like a superhero. He was tall, handsome, wealthy, but he was nothing more than an empty suit of armor, God knows the hearts of men, and he's not looking for superheroes. He knows how we are flawed. So God chose more of an anti-hero to be the next king of Israel. He chose David, not because David was so good, but because God was so good to David. God loved David, even though he didn't deserve it, and he called him to a mighty task for which he was uniquely suited. And we're going to see that this morning. Not only does every anti-hero have an origin story, but every anti-hero has an arch enemy as well. God had a plan to raise David to prominence, and he made use of David's skill set against an enemy to do just that. And when the right opportunity meets the right person for the job, it's a beautiful thing. So let's take a look at it. Turn with me in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 17. You can also find it on your electronic device if you'd like. That's fine. If you don't have either of those things, you're welcome to take out one of the Bibles from The pew, uh, the shelf on the pew, underneath the pew in front of you. If you turn that Bible to page 239, you'll find 1 Samuel 17, page 239. There's also some notes in your bulletin if you'd like to write some things down. So we're coming to the story of David and Goliath this morning. And whenever that happens, the speaker finds himself in a difficult situation. Everyone in this room knows how this story ends maybe the most famous story of the Old Testament. If you've grown up anywhere near church, then you've heard this underdog story dozens and dozens of times. David versus Goliath has become a metaphor, the metaphor of choice for every miraculous against all odds victory in life. And the lesson is always the same. Trust God and you'll succeed even against overwhelming odds. So how can I possibly say anything about this story that you haven't already heard a hundred times. Well, you don't come here on Sunday mornings to hear the same old thing. You deserve only the best. So in preparation for this message, I tried to read this underdog story as if it was for the very first time. And I discovered something amazing. David's victory over Goliath wasn't some fluke or miracle. David knew God's plan for his life. And like Henry V., He won the battle over a stronger opponent because he had superior skills, the better plan, and the appropriate weapon. David brought a gun to a knife fight. I intend to prove to you this morning that Goliath was the underdog in this story. He was nothing more than a big, ugly blowhard, a paper tiger, never stood a chance against God's chosen one. And when we buy into that perspective that David was the favorite and Goliath was the underdog, then it completely changes the lesson we take away from this story. So let's get right down to our main point this morning, even before I read the passage from First Samuel 17. The main point is this. It's in your bulletin if you'd like to write it down. The main point I'm going to try to prove to you this morning is that this incident was no accident. This incident we read about here in 1 Samuel 17, it was no accident. It was no fluke. It was no accident. Now, the story is a bit lengthy, so we're only going to read some excerpts from it this morning. But as we do, I encourage you to keep an open mind. Let's read it as if it was for the very first time. And let's see what new perspectives may pop out at us. First Samuel 17, we're going to start in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Soko and Azekai and Ephith Dammon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered, and they encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain. "'On the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side "'with a valley between them. "'And there came out from the camp of the Philistines "'a champion named Goliath of Gath, "'whose height was six cubits in a span. "'He had a helmet of bronze on his head, "'and he was armored with a coat of mail, "'and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. "'And he had bronze armor on his legs "'and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. "'The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's bean.' Beam and the, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and a shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Let's skip down to verse 19 now. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistine drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them, Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel... When they saw the man fled from him and were very much afraid. And Men of Israel said, "Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel." And David said to the men who stood by him, "What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel?" Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. When the words of David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. I skipped down to verse 31 there, by the way. Verse 32. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go up against this Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used, used to keep sheep for his father when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose up against me, I caught him with his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put on his helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried to go in vain, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. The Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Now give the bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field and all the earth will know that there's a God in Israel. And they all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hand. And the Philistine arose and came near and drew near to David. David ran quickly to the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in the bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him, and there was no sword in the hand of David. Okay. As this story has been told and retold, I think we have been conditioned to think that this was just a lucky shot by David. We tend to think that this was some kind of miracle that he hit the giant square in the forehead. We tend to think that David just closed his eyes and flung the rock in Goliath's general direction and only by God's supernatural intervention did it hit its target. The general consensus is that David had no chance in this battle. He was the ultimate underdog. He put blind faith in God and God directed the rock against all odds to smash into the giant's face and kill him. Randy Johnson has accomplished just about everything a major league pitcher can accomplish. He's a Hall of Famer. He's a five-time Cy Young Award winner. He's recorded over 4,800 strikeouts through a no-hitter no in 1990, recorded a perfect game in 2004, threw 100-plus mile-per-hour fastballs and nasty sliders, He was a tall, scary, intimidating figure on the mound. But despite all this, Randy Johnson is probably best known for an amazing feat he accomplished in 2001. No, we're not talking about the World Series MVP that he won with the Diamondbacks that year. We're talking about what happened in an obscure spring training game. It was March 24th, 2001, and Johnson was pitching against the San Francisco Giants and I know what you're thinking, what can happen in a spring training game? That's so remarkable. No one cares about spring training. Back in those days, spring training games were rarely even recorded on video. But this game just so happened to be recorded on a whim by Jim Currigan, the Arizona Diamondbacks' video coordinator. In the seventh inning, Giants outfielder Calvin Murray came to the plate, and Johnson unloaded a fastball. But at precisely the right moment, or the wrong moment, depending on how you look at it, a dove flew between the mound and the plate. And against all odds, Johnson's 100-mile-per-hour fastball struck the bird, resulting in an explosion of white feathers. It was simply unbelievable. What are the chances of something like that happening? The odds would have been astronomical. And it was a direct hit, too. The ball never made it to the plate. And this is how we look at David's shot, I think. Despite all David accomplished in his life, he has gone down in history for one lucky or unlucky shot, depending on whose perspective you're looking from. He, too, was pinching against a giant, though not a San Francisco giant, and against all odds, he killed something. But do you know what? When you actually read the story at face value, I don't think that's the message we get. This incident was no accident. As a matter of fact, the author takes great pains to show us that David made a calculated decision to fight the giant, and he had a winning strategy in place, and he had spent his whole life honing the skills to be victorious. It's not to say that David didn't have faith in God. He expresses great faith. But this wasn't magic. God used a skill that David had developed over the course of his entire life to blow up the enemy. David brought a gun to a knife fight, and the giant was the one who didn't stand a chance. So let's take a look at Goliath. First, we notice his remarkable size, of course. Now, sometimes we have difficulty converting ancient measurements into modern ones. But it seems that Goliath is anywhere from six and a half feet tall, which would have been very tall for that day and age, to others say he was as close to 9 feet 6 inches tall, which would have been a genetic abnormality, right? The tallest man in modern history was Robert Wadlow, who was 8 feet 11 inches tall, but he had all kinds of medical problems, and he died at 22 years old. But it doesn't really matter exactly how tall Goliath was As we'll soon see, even if Goliath had been 15 feet tall, his height wasn't going to help him in battle. The only thing his size could do in this situation is intimidate, and David was obviously not intimidated. The author also goes on to take great lengths to describe Goliath's armor. It weighed perhaps, if we try to convert the measurements, perhaps 125 pounds which is a bit heavier than medieval armor. But again, he could have been dressed in Kevlar and it still wouldn't have helped him in this fight. As a matter of fact, like the Battle of Agincourt and the French in the Battle of Agincourt, his armor would be more of a hindrance against a lighter, faster, and more agile opponent. He also had a ridiculously oversized spear that he wouldn't even get the opportunity to use how impractical a 20-pound spear must have been. Now, I suppose with his sword and hand-to-hand combat, Goliath would have been a formidable opponent. But against David's weapon of choice, Goliath is just a clown on stilts wearing oversized pants. Goliath didn't even recognize David's weapon. All he saw was the staff. All he saw was a stick. But it's clear from this passage that the Spirit of God didn't instantly and miraculously make David an expert marksman with the sling for this one task in his life. Shepherds, you see, have a lot of downtime. So David had all the time in the world to practice with the sling, as it talks about here in this passage. In those days, the shepherd's staff sling was no toy. It was no novelty. It was a legit weapon. And when Saul tries to talk David out of fighting against the giant, David tells him that he has already killed lions and bears out in the pasture with a sling. The Hebrew word used to describe how he struck the giant with a stone in verse 49 is the same word he used to describe how he struck a lion and a bear in verse 35 and 36. How else could he kill these massive animals? David was lethal. With the sling, I watched some um, YouTube videos this week of some guys who had made their own shepherd staff sling, and um, these are real outdoorsy guys, guys you know, guys who can really, really do it. And these guys were good with the sling; Uh, they were hitting the target every time at speeds that approached a Randy Johnson fastball. They were exploding melons as they were flicking these rocks, and some might say, "Well, yeah, but could you really kill a man with a sling?" Some of you may know the Roman Empire unsuccessfully tried to conquer the British Isles in the second century a d The ancient island people were fierce fighters, and they eventually expelled the Romans from their land, but that 's not to say that the romans didn 't get their licks in doesn 't get a lot of press, but ancient Roman Slingers were lethal in battle. Now the bow and the arrow gets all the press, and the bow and the arrow are great for long-distant arcing shots, but for direct shots, the sling was the way to go. Trained Roman slingers, as history tells us, could consistently hit a target the size of a man's head from a great distance. Modern experts and experiments show that small stones can be hurled from an ancient sling can inflict almost as much damage as a .44 Magnum cartridge fired from a handgun. Larger sling stones could take off the top of a man's head. And in modern-day Scotland, there's an ancient battle site on Burnswark Hill. The Scottish had built a fort on the hill, and they took a stand against the attacking Romans... And Roman sling stones can still be found all over the, st- the site, these ancient slingstones, And evidently, the Romans ended the siege with a barrage of flying projectiles. And since the Scottish only had swords and clubs, they didn't stand a chance. They were mowed down. They had brought knives to a gunfight, and the slingers took them out. And the sling was just as deadly even before that, in Old Testament time, Judges 2016 talks about an army and it says, among them were 700 chosen men who were left-handed and everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So this incident with Goliath is no accident. Saul expected David to try to fight Goliath hand to hand as everyone else did. And, and that's why he offers David his own armor. But David knew that that armor would just bog him down in the mud so to speak David wasn't going to fight in the traditional way he wasn't going to play to the strengths of this blasphemous blowhard yelling at him David had the ancient equivalent of a gun so it didn't matter how big how strong and how heavily armored Goliath was David knew he was going to win Mark Twain wrote a satirical novel in 1889 called A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. And in the book, the anti hero of the story is a then modern day engineer from Connecticut named Hank Morgan. And Hank Morgan receives a blow to the head and is somehow transported back in time to medieval England. So Hank uses 19th century technology to fool the medieval peasants into thinking. He is a powerful magician. And all throughout the story, Twain pokes fun at the knight's ridiculous notion of chivalry. One particular knight named Sir Sagramore challenges Hank to a duel to the death for some perceived slight, and Hank finds himself on the opposite end of a battlefield to the well trained, battle hardened, heavily armored knight. With his sword drawn, Sagramore Charges at Hank on an ironclad battle horse. So, what's Hank going to do? He's not trained. He probably never swung a sword in his life. Well, let's let Mr. Twain tell the story in his own words. He says, Sir Sagramore's long blade described a flashing curve in the air, and it was superb to see him come. I sat still, told in the perspective of Hank Morgan. I sat still. On he came. I did not move. People got so excited that they shouted to me, fly, fly, save thyself. This is murder. I never budged so much as an inch till the thundering apparition had gotten within 15 paces of me. Then I snatched a dragoon revolver out of my holster. There was a flash in a war and the revolver was back in the holster before anyone could tell what had happened. Here was a riderless horse plunging by and yonder lay Sir Sagramore, stone dead dead. He brought a gun to a knife fight. Reminds me of the scene from Indiana Jones who is also sort of an anti-hero where Indy gets challenged by that big scary guy swinging the machete. You remember that? So he just pulls out his revolver and shoots him. There's a lot of bluster. There's a lot of intimidation. It's a great show of strength. But in the end, all of our anti-heroes this morning, Henry V, Hank Morgan, Indiana Jones, they have brought a gun To a knife fight, their enemies don't stand a chance. And that's what we see here with our anti-hero, David. He knew he could kill this guy. He wasn't intimidated. He didn't need a miracle. He had the equivalent of a medieval revolver. What I'm trying to say is that God didn't miraculously give David the ability to kill the giant with a sling on that day. David had already honed that ability on his own. Instead, God had called David to be the next king of Israel, as we saw last week, and he miraculously gave him the opportunity to make that happen. David had heard that whoever killed the giant would be given the king's daughter in marriage, instantly making him part of the royal family, And since this opportunity required someone with a particular skill set, David discerned that this must have been God's will. So he took that opportunity. And the rest is history. If you or I were to kill a giant with a sling, it would be a miracle. But David, it was not. God showed David the right opportunity to use his particular skill set to make God's will happen and David took it. The miracle wasn't in David's ability. The miracle was in the opportunity to use that ability to rise to prominence, to become king of Israel and to fulfill God's will. And that's our application from this passage this morning that you can apply to your life. It's in your bulletin. The application this morning is this. Refine your skill while you define God's will. Work on refining your skill while you define or discern or try to find God's will for your life, while you're looking for that opportunity to use that skill set. In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul talks about the different giftings and ability that God has given to all of his people Romans twelve six through 8 Apostle Paul says, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. But before Paul discuss all these people particular skill sets, he reminds the people to discern God's will for their lives a couple of verses before he says this in Romans 12:2 he says discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect and then he goes on to list all these different skill sets that they are to hone paul commands us to refine the skills that he has already given us as we define or discern the opportunities that he brings along for us to use the skill set. David saw the opportunity he would get from killing Goliath. He would give him the opportunity to fulfill God's will for his life. And he just so happened to have the skills to do it. So everything came together. See, I don't think David necessarily had that much greater faith than everyone else in that army. He certainly had great faith, and he needed it. I don't want to downplay that this morning. But surely there are others in the army who also had faith in God. But only David had the faith in God and the particular skill set to get the job done. He had been refining that skill for years and years. And when the opportunity came... He was ready. You see, God's will for your life typically matches the skill set God has given you. Do you hear that? God's will for your life typically matches the skill set God has given you. So refine that skill as you try to define his will, the opportunities that he brings in your life. The opportunities that he wants you to take typically utilize the things you are good at. So as you look at this story today, don't ask yourself necessarily what great leap of faith you must take to slay the giants in your life. That's not necessarily the point. Don't look for opportunities to do stuff that you're not good at and then just hope that God will miraculously give you the ability to do that. Now, he might call you to do that in some circumstances. That might be a good way to get burned. Instead, whatever you are good at, become great at it. Whatever useful skills and abilities you have, hone them. If you're good at working with your hands, then become great at it. If you're a good public speaker or teacher, then become a great public speaker or teacher. If you're good with people and working with them, then become great with them. If you're a good leader, become a great leader. If you're a good motivator, then become a great motivator. Hone your skills until you are lethal with them. And as you're doing that, define God's will for your life. Look for the God given opportunities to use that skill en route to fulfilling God's will for your life. Maybe it's something really practical. You know, you're you're good with uh, uh, building things. How can God use that? What opportunities is he given you? Good with music. How how can God use that? What opportunities do you see? Maybe you're good. Uh, maybe you're just a great with with little children. Become become really great at it. Look for the opportunities that you can use that. You see, the miracle of the Spirit of God doesn't typically come, I believe, in the form of some new superpower that you suddenly have to slay the giant. The miracle comes in the opportunity God brings to use the skills that you already have and that you're honing. The miracle comes in God's timing. Some of you may be frustrated because you, maybe you're trying to uh, do something great and, and, and serve God in some ministry or some area that you're simply not skilled at. And it's stressful and it's difficult. But I don't want you to put yourself in the underdog role just to demonstrate some sort of faith. Instead, look for opportunities to use your skill set For God's work. Fight the enemy on your terms. And that enemy will be revealed for who he really is. See, the devil makes a lot of noise, but he's completely defenseless against the weapons God has given you. The enemy will try to intimidate you with a size and strength. Oh, the job's just too big. It's just too difficult. You don't stand a chance. But he's just a big, ugly blowhard with a soft underbelly. Really, what can he do to you besides talk? So stop engaging in the conversation. Play to your strengths, not your enemies. Be the best at what you do well. Look for opportunities to use your skill set. And you'll be shocked at the damage you can inflict on the enemy of your souls when you bring a gun to a knife fight. Okay, so every great antihero has an origin story, as we saw last week. Every great antihero has a villain, as we saw this week. And every great antihero has a sidekick. So I'm going to encourage you this week to read 1 Samuel 18 through 20, for chapters 18, 19, and 20. If you have the time, bring a friend next Sunday, and we'll look at the unbreakable alliance of David with his friend Jonathan, let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you so much for these good people who are here today who have made the effort to dig out of their driveways and, and come and, and worship this morning and encourage one another and I pray you would bless them for that. Thank you so much, Lord, for the people who would, who would uh, do everything to make this service happen from our musicians to our children's workers and nursery workers, music people, guys in the sound booth, the guys who, who plowed and shoveled today, thank you, Lord, for them, that we could enjoy this time in and, and comfort, and and um, pray you'd bless them. Lord, it's amazing we have all these people who have these different skills, and they're using them to fulfill the opportunity you've given them, and I thank you for that. But we look at the rest of us, Lord, as, as, as we're all serving, Lord, and we're all working, but... Maybe we haven't quite found that niche yet. I pray, Lord, you would open an opportunity wide open, miraculously, to use whatever skill set you have, to do whatever job you have for us. So we wouldn't be frustrated, but we would be empowered and excited as we conquer the enemy of our souls, as we reach this neighborhood and bless the people in this church. Lord, don't let us spin our wheels trying to do things that maybe we're not skilled at and gifted at, that we would focus on what the opportunity you've given us to meet our skill set, and it would be a beautiful thing. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.